Hello, everybody. Terrence Lahue here with another episode of the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast, where we talk philosophy from the farm. Our guest today is Jim Riddle from Blue Fruit Farm. He has worn many hats during his career and been a part of many organic agricultural boards. Notably, he's been on the National Organic Standards Board and currently on the steering committee of the National Organic Farmers Association. In today's episode, we'll talk with Jim about the various types of berries he grows and why, what the role of the National Organic Standards Board is, and why conservation is conservative. Before we start the interview, I just want to give a quick plug for our new website, intellectualagrarian.com. There you can find videos of farmers markets, farm tours, quick reviews, and thoughts on how farm philosophy applies to our everyday lives. There you can also sign up for our newsletter so you can get updates and articles sent directly to your inbox. Now, let's get on with the show. Jim, welcome to the show. Well, thanks a lot, Terrence. Uh, it's a pleasure to be a guest of yours. Now, before we get too far down the road, can you give us a brief biographical sketch for the audience? Sure. Yeah, I uh, was born and raised in central Iowa on a small farm, and we had some uh, dairy cows and raised sweet corn, sold at a roadside stand. Um, graduated from Grinnell College in Iowa in biology and political science, double major. Uh, moved up to Minnesota shortly thereafter and got involved in farming up here, doing organic produce. Um, and uh, my wife, Joyce, and I um, started the Winona Farmers Market in the mid-1980s with a few other growers. And it's a thriving market, and it's always been a local foods market. It's always required that you grow or process the food yourself within a 50-mile radius of Winona. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, something early on, but then got involved in inspecting organic farms and before long was asked to help train other inspectors. That led to me being the founding chair of the International Organic Inspectors Association and developed training uh, curricula, um, organic system plan forms, inspection report templates, and trained inspectors all over the world. It, it was amazing how uh, many doors that opened and opportunities. Um, and then uh, served a five-year term on the USDA National Organic Standards Board. Uh, worked for the University of Minnesota as organic outreach coordinator for seven years. Managed an organic research uh, grant program for a private foundation called Series Trust. And uh, in the last seven years, Joyce and I have got back into farming with Perennial Fruits, a Blue Fruit Farm, and I'm currently chairing the steering committee of the new National Organic Farmers Association. So keeping my hands in the dirt, but yet <laughs> staying involved in policy uh, throughout. So what was it that led you to organic and sustainable farming specifically? Obviously, you had an agricultural background. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we never used pesticides on our farm, so we probably would have qualified, but it was before the word organic was, you know, well-known. Uh, but my mother did subscribe to Organic Gardening Magazine, and so we always had a compost pile and mulched, uh, the, you know, in the garden and did canning and 
that kind of stuff. So always grew up with, uh, you know, kind of the homesteading sensibilities, but also the influence of organic gardening. And I'm, you know, deep down uh, nature lover, uh, really have studied ecology and see the negative impacts that the uh, pesticides and synthetic fertilizers have on the ecosystem, on everything from soil organisms, birds, water quality, human health, and uh, have seen the success of organic. So I just know there's a better way. So tell us about your farm. Uh, how long have you been raising fruit? Yeah, so we have about five acres in uh, production of perennial fruits, and uh, it's all protected with an eight-foot-high deer fence because <laughs> we are in a very high deer pressure area. Um, and we first planted, uh, we did some cover cropping, get weeds and get fertility up before we planted any of the fruits. But we did our first plantings in 2010, uh, blueberries, aronia berries, um, and then uh, have gradually expanded um, with more blueberries, but then uh, a lot of more unusual things like black currants, elderberries, honeyberries, juneberries, and uh, several varieties of blue plums. So what made you choose those types of fruits? I mean, they aren't the kind yeah. that you typically see in a grocery store. Right, right. Yeah, everybody loves blueberries, and everybody's familiar with blueberries <laughs> in, in uh, the United States mm-hmm. anyway. Um, and and uh, so that was uh, a first choice, but our soil is not naturally acidic. It's about a 6.8 pH, and blueberries need 5 to 5.5. So we have to do, you know, quite a bit of soil amending, you know, with approved materials, so high-quality compost, peat moss, and elemental sulfur uh, for the blueberries. But, you know, the blueberries, I like to say, are hard to grow but easy to sell. <laughs> The other things we grow are relatively easy to grow but hard to sell. Mm-hmm. So we, the other crops we grow, the black currants, aronia, honeyberries, etc., like our soil the way it is. So just some good quality compost, and they're good to go. Uh, but we've had to put a lot of effort, and, and it's fun, but uh, educating people on these fruits uh, because they're not well known in the United States, but in Europe, in Russia, former Soviet republics, Japan, um, you know, they're staples. They're they're part of the diet, and people are very familiar. Uh, you know, like people from Great Britain grow up with black currants as part of the diet, and um, even the candy Skittles that in the United States the purple color is grape. The rest of the world it's black currant. Oh, really? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Um, But so, yeah, I do a number of, uh, you know, educational workshops, uh, tastings. We also make jams and juices from our fruit. And so that gives it, it extends the season, gives us something to sell on into the winter. But it also is a way to educate people. Here's what blackcurrant tastes like. Here's what honeyberry tastes like, aronia, et cetera. So, um, you know, that, that has been a challenge, but we've seen a, a great surge of interest in, in these new uh, crops because they're packed with flavor and they're really uh, beneficial as far as health-promoting properties, vitamin C levels, antiviral properties in the elderberries, and very high antioxidant levels in the aronia and the elderberries. I thought that 
I was one of those guys that knew a little bit more about food than other people, and I didn't even recognize some of these berries. I mean, uh-huh. what is an aronia berry? Just Yeah, well, the common name is black chokeberry, not choke cherry, chokeberry. It's a shrub. It's actually native to this area. You'll find them occasionally in the woods. Um, uh, they're uh, about the size of a blueberry, but pretty much a purple-black when they're fully ripe. And they're in a, hang in a cluster of maybe 20 berries that all ripen at the same time. So they're you know, much easier to harvest than blueberries, which ripen you know, here or there, um, uh, not as consistently. Um, and yeah, they're the highest antioxidant fruit that we can grow. Uh, about four, at least four times the antioxidant levels of blueberries. Wow. Uh, but they are astringent. So when you pick them and eat them raw, um, they're juicy, but yet they make your mouth feel dry, so you kind of pucker up. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fine to eat them raw, but they're not like a blueberry where you just put a handful in your cereal. Um, people do add them to smoothies. Um, and uh, eat them raw that way, but mostly they are processed into jams, jellies, juices, wine. Um, we work with a, a brewery over in Rochester, Forager Brewing, and they're making beers with just about all of our fruits. Uh, so that's really a fun project, too. Yeah. So which of these fruits is your favorite? Well, I would... I mean, it's really hard to. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to say pick favorites. Better than a really good blueberry. <laughs> That's true. Uh, uh, but I'm very excited about the honeyberries, and the honeyberry. Um, there is a uh, cousin to this species that is native to northern Wisconsin and Minnesota, but they're uh, really from Siberia and Hokkaido, the North Island of Japan. And all the breeding work is being done in, in North America here with the University of Saskatchewan. And they're a purple, a bluish purple, oblong fruit, about, oh, three quarters to an inch long. And they ripen before strawberries. So we were actually picking honeyberries at the end of May this year, so early June. Um, and they are edible as a fresh fruit. So they're similar in flavor to I consider kind of an underripe blueberry. They have a little more tartness to them, but they're very palatable just right off the bush. And they make incredible uh, jams, spreads, things like that, too. So they're, they're one, I think it's really an up-and-comer, uh, the honeyberry, or it's also known as hascap. Um, they're very hardy. They're blooming in late April when it's still not just frosting, but actually freezing. So you'll see the blossoms open on days when it's in the upper 40s, 50s, and there's actually pollinators working them. So they're an early food source for pollinators, too. Here's the problem. I ask people about food, and then I start getting hungry. You'd think I'd learned my lesson by now. (laughs) Right. So you've been involved in organics since basically its inception, and you were a critic of the early regulations when they came out in 1997. Where did those first rules go wrong? Well... Um, they ignored the recommendations of the National Organic Standards Board, and they ignored existing state laws and certification standards that were already in place. Um, But specifically, uh, they would have allowed the use of genetic engineering, 
the application of sewage sludge. They would have allowed organic animals to be treated with antibiotics. They would have allowed irradiation of organic foods. They would have allowed the feeding of slaughter byproducts to organic animals. And all those things had historically been prohibited, um, but yet they issued a proposed rule that allowed all of those and uh, a number of other things. I mean, they had the most repulsive proposed logo, for instance, which was kind of a triangle, but then with a slash across it, like they, you know, not symbol. Uh, you know, it was just bizarre. Um, so, um, yeah, they issued it right before Christmas, 1997, and I took my entire Christmas, uh, New Year's holidays, and poured through it line by line, and went back to the recommendations of the NOSB, National Organic Standards Board, existing standards, and basically, you know, uh, issued a very detailed uh, comment uh, that told them where it was wrong, why it was wrong, and offered replacement language. And, uh, the, you know, there was 275,000 negative comments received by USDA on that first proposed rule, and that set a record at the time. Um, and uh, fortunately, they withdrew it and changed some staff and went back to the NOSB recommendations and the public comments. And then when they issued the second proposed rule in 2000, it was actually recognizable as an organic standard. And there, you know, I also uh, commented on that one, but it was more polishing it up. Fix this word here, fix this, you know, section. Uh, but they turned that around into the final rule by the end of that year, and then it went into effect in 2002. You couldn't see it, but my jaw just dropped when you started talking about what was originally in there, because genetic engineering, sewage sludge, irradiation, all those things are staples of what I now think of as organics is not that. Yeah. It, it's hard. It's it just, it's hard to imagine that's the way it, they thought that it should be. I mean, I'm just flabbergasted. Yeah. Well, and I, they clearly underestimated the, uh, you know, engagement, I will say, of the organic community, both the farmers and the consumers, and to mobilize mm -hmm. um, and resist. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think that shows that uh, people do care about food and do care about what organic means. And, you know, it's really important that we maintain that. I mean, this is our rule, and um, we have to stay engaged to make sure that it has integrity and authenticity and that farmers who are doing the right thing are protected against fraud and that consumers who are seeking and paying for organic food are getting what they're paying for. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, obviously, we kind of mentioned in the story, but you were a member of the National Organic Standards Board from 2001 right. to 2006, and we're chair of it during that time also. Can you explain? Yeah, for just one year. For just I, one year. Yeah, and I, yeah, but I was on the executive committee all five years. Can you explain what the role of the NOSB is for those who may not quite understand its purpose? Right. Well, you have to go back to the Organic Foods Production Act of 1990, uh, and that is the law that uh, um, the regulation 
was written to fulfill. And part of that law mandated the appointment by USDA of a 15-member National Organic Standards Board. And there are certain seats for certified organic farmers, organic processors, retailers, scientists, environmentalists, a representative of the certification sector, and that's the seat I filled as an organic inspector. Um, but uh, And members serve five-year terms, can only serve one term, and the board has essentially two responsibilities. One is to advise USDA on the content of the standards, on the regulation itself. And so the board makes a number of different recommendations about changes to the standards, such as the pasture requirements that are now part of the regulation that weren't part of the original rule. Um, and so that's one, is to provide advice on the standards. The second, the board has a statutory authority over what's called the national list, the list of allowed inputs that can be used in organic crop farming, livestock production, and processing, as well as there's a list of things that can't be used, so prohibited materials. And it takes a two-thirds vote of the board to either place something on this list or remove it. And the Secretary of Agriculture, USDA, cannot change that list, cannot add anything or remove anything without a two-thirds vote of the board. So that's some real power mm -hmm. held by this uh, board. Uh, members are appointed and serve voluntarily. It's a volunteer uh, position. They're, your expenses are covered to attend meetings, um, but it's, it's much more than an honor. It's a lot of work. It's a big responsibility uh, because, you know, they, at the time I was on the board, we were meeting three times a year. Now it's twice, I believe. Uh, but there's conference calls of subcommittees just about every week. So um, it, it's a very hard-working board and uh, a board that's quite high-profile, and you're considering everything from, you know, impacts on soil ecology to processed products and their impacts on human health or their sources and how they are manufactured and processed and the impact of those steps on the environment. So there's any number of issues and inputs that come before the board, and uh, so there's a lot of time and study involved to really take that responsibility seriously. I mean, just the national list itself, trying right. to review and make sure that everything on there should be on there to use and not use, that... I've read over the national list. There's a lot of items prohibited and a lot of items approved. Right, right. But it's still minuscule compared to the number of inputs that are allowed in conventional farming and conventional food processing. I think people really don't tend to understand how much inputs in a sheer chemical state are allowed in farming in general. Yeah. And then when they see the stuff in organics, they're like, oh, how are you using that? Well, you don't realize they use this in conventional farming. Well, right, right. And and you don't have to keep records mm -hmm. uh, in conventional like you have to in organic. I mean, that's a huge difference right there is the record-keeping requirements. 
and the transparency and the fact that you're getting inspected, somebody is checking your operation at least once a year. Mm -hmm. That just doesn't happen in conventional systems. Now you're a part of the steering committee for this new National Organic Farmers Association. What was the idea behind its creation? Yeah, well, um, there are groups, you know, that speak uh, at the national level on behalf of the Organic Trade, Organic Trade Association, which is really dominated by, you know, large-scale processors uh, and, and that side of things. There's uh, the Organic Consumers Association that speaks for the, you know, consumer side. But there's no one national voice speaking for the needs and interests of certified organic farmers. And um, that's something that is unique about OFA, is that only certified organic farmers vote to both select leadership as well as establish the policy platform, the priorities. And, um, you know, we saw a need, um, and a number of us had come together um, in an effort that we were calling the Organic Farmers Alliance, uh, which was a model of, you know, organic farm organizations working together. Well, at the same time, the Rodale Institute um, was formulating an organic farmers association and announced that. And um, those of us working on the alliance uh, effort said the last thing we need is two new groups <laughs> saying they speak for organic farmers. Mm-hmm. So let's do whatever we can to see if it's possible to merge these efforts. And so we uh, initiated uh, conversations with the folks at Rodale. Uh, they were very open to the idea, and so we put a lot of work in uh, negotiating, establishing a sponsorship agreement. So it really is a hybrid. It's a uh, uh, Rodale is the fiscal sponsor, but they're more than that. They're a partner mm-hmm. in the whole effort. Uh, but at the same time, it's an independent association. We can take positions contrary to those of Rodale if need be. Hopefully. There's no need, but then we certainly have that uh, power um, because only certified organic farmers are the ones who determine those positions, and they can't be overruled ruled by the Rodale Board or anything like that. Um, so we have uh, our own executive director, an uh, incredible woman named Kate Mendenhall, uh, who's a former executive director of, of NOFA New York, the uh, uh, Northeast Organic Farmers Association of New York, um, and now we've recently hired a policy director, a guy named Mark Rockola, who's in D.C., although he does have a farm in Minnesota that he is transitioning to organic. Uh, but he's worked on five farm bills, really knows his way around uh, D.C., and um, I think we're well poised. We just um, elected our first policy committee, um, and so they are meeting um, this coming week. And we will be surveying our members regarding some of the hot issues that are in play for the upcoming Farm Bill, as well as uh, things coming before the National Organic Standards Board. So the input of the members will inform the Policy Committee, who will finalize uh, the positions, and those uh, will inform our Policy Director on you know, things that come up in D.C. I think it's just exciting you guys are doing this because 
it seems like oftentimes farmers in general feel like their voice isn't heard and sometimes organic farmers specifically, and this gives them that outlet. Yeah, yeah. And we've got an incredible steering committee, uh, people all over the country that have stepped forward, and now we've elected a policy committee. And once again, some really top-notch, experienced, dedicated uh, people, but also some young people um, uh, and, um, yeah, people that want to find out more should go to our website, organicfarmersassociation.org, and it lists the steering committee members. It talks about our mission, our, our draft guiding principles, and bylaws are all up there um, so people can find out more. And they can also join. And besides the certified organic farmer members, we also have supporting members, and those are both individuals and we have organizational members. And the organizational members also have representatives on both the steering committee and the policy committee, but they are advisory positions, they're non-voting. We like to say you have a voice, but not a vote. Mm-hmm. We want to know what your reaction, what your thoughts are, and it really helps us, but at the end of the day, it's the organic farmers who make the call. That's terrific. Now. At the Beyond Pesticide Conference this last year, you gave a keynote lecture in which you made some a great note. I just love this. Conservation is conservative. And you drew correlations between sustainable philosophy and conservative principles. Would you mind sharing these with us? Um, sure, yeah. And, and uh, I, I truly believe this. I was raised in a Republican household, but also always... Um, uh, dedicated to conservation. I just saw that the two of those go hand in hand. Nothing could be more conservative than taking care of land and water and health. Mm-hmm. And that's what organic does. And, you know, you hear, hear the term pro-life in, in, in relation to abortion. And, you know, I, t- I, I see a broader vision. I, I think organic uh, is pro-life to the core. Mm-hmm. I mean, right from the ground up. We care about soil organisms. We care about biological and genetic diversity. We incorporate the diversity in our operations. And, you know, there's a lot more to being pro-life than just, you know, worrying about one gender of one species at one point in time. I mean, mm-hmm. life is much, much bigger than that. And we think, I think it's important to embrace that concept and, and redefine it into um, exactly what we're doing, which is trying to keep the earth uh, habitable for humans. And, uh, um, you know, I think uh, um, we're on the right track there. But, you know, I look at the economics in, in organic, and we really practice free market farming. It's a kind of agriculture that's not continually dependent on government subsidies. It's, you know, farming, making farming choices in response to market demands. So we're farming for the market. But we're also practicing self-regulated environmental protection. You know, we're the ones that went to the government and said, please define and regulate organic. We want it protected, but we want it um, really strict. Um, And the market has responded. um, But, you know, people voluntarily choose to farm organically um, and the whole suite of environmental protections that that entails are things that not only do they embrace, but they're checked through the certification process. So we're um, practicing what I would think a conservative value 
of protecting the environment based on personal choice and in response to market. But we, you know, also truly, you know, care for the creation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, whether, uh, it, you know, as an organic inspector, I was an inspector for 20 years, and I, you know, would always ask people, why are you farming organically? And probably the number one uh, response I got was what I call kind of salt-of-the-earth Christians, people who just responded, you know, this is the way God intended us to, to live on earth, uh, take care of the creation. Uh, a lot of others, it was, you know, not wanting to poison their own families with the pesticides. I remember one young dad saying, you know, he'd farmed conventionally and gone through the pesticide applicator training and knew how toxic the inputs are. He said, when I get off my tractor, I want to be able to come in the house and hug my kids, you know, without contaminating them, without contaminating um, the family's laundry mm-hmm. or, you know, anything like that. So, you know, that that's a real strong motivation. And I think health is is something that is it should be a universal value it certainly is a conservative value that health starts with personal choices and so um, taking responsibility for our own our family's health by avoiding the toxins but also uh, really caring about the food that we produce and you know that's one thing where research has been consistent that organic foods are have either no or very low levels of pesticide residues, and conventional foods consistently have multiple residues of pesticides. So, you know, I, I think it's a very uh, positive step forward in the whole healthcare debate um, how we take care of the land and the kind of food that we produce and the foods we choose to uh, consume. But then things, you know, I take it a little further thinking about property rights. Well, um, you know, we as organic farmers have a right to farm our land free of pesticide and GMO contamination. Um, and the land itself has rights uh, to, um, you know, clean water, biological diversity. Um, and, um, and, you know, nothing could be more important for this nation's security than taking care of our land and water and producing healthy food. I mean, that is fundamental. Um, What do we have to protect if it's a poisoned uh, country and a sick country? Um, So I think it's really important that we, you know, start our conversations about security with what are we doing in our daily lives uh, to take care of the land and water that we're blessed to live on. And you know, to understand the role that immigrants play in our food system. I mean, first of all, unless we're Native Americans, <laughs> we're all immigrants. Yep. You know, we just got to be humble and recognize that. And most of the immigrant communities have got to start in this country in agriculture, um, whether it's Germans, uh, Scandinavians, uh, uh, whatever. But now it's, it's uh, you know, uh, Latino and Hmong um, that are backbone, uh, you know, of our food system, mm-hmm. and we need to recognize the value that immigrants uh, play in producing food. And um, we really, as a country, need to invest in organic systems. And it's the smartest money you know we can spend um, with 
so many benefits, like like I've talked about. Um, and you know, right now we're we're at a time where there have been news stories and and uh, imports huge quantities of fraudulent uh, grain coming in from primarily Turkey, Ukraine, Romania, being sold as organic in this country. And first, we need USDA to take strong enforcement action. But second, what it shows to me, right now, um, about 70% of the organic soybeans used in the U.S. are being imported, and about 40 to 50% of the organic corn. And even if that was authentic, why should we be rewarding farmers in Turkey, Ukraine, and Romania to take care of their land and their family's health, et cetera, when we're not doing that here in this country? So it shows that our farm policies are broken when we aren't meeting market, bona fide market demand mm-hmm. as well as protecting the environment um, here in this country. Um, and then there's the, on top of that, the whole concerns about the, you know, fraud of the product itself. Um, but even if it's authentic, we should be investing those dollars in America's farmers, America's environment, and America's health. I absolutely agree with you 100%. Uh, I'm a conservative, and I grew up looking at organic farming as stewardship. That was the way I was raised. It, right. All the things you're talking about. I really appreciated hearing this because it is true. I mean, if there's one thing we can all find common ground on, especially in today's very polarized political spectrum, I think that we should be finding common ground in that we want to raise food the right way. Right, right. Uh What changes would you like to see in organic farming coming in the future? You spoke a little bit about us investing in the home agriculture. Is there anything beyond that? Well, yeah, I, I, I do think um, we do need a robust uh, system where conventional farmers can convert to organic. That they, uh, right now, um, you basically would be turning your back on guaranteed payments when you diversify your crop rotation uh, and make that tra- three year transition. So, what I think we need is uh, a safety net. Uh, a reform of the commodity program so that it becomes a choice whether a farmer wants to transition or not, that they're not locked in on kind of a conventional GMO treadmill, uh, which is what the case is right now. So that there's a safety net, you know, that follows that farmer through transition and maybe the first couple years of organic production so that they would receive the same level of support um, uh, from the federal government that they currently receive by staying conventional. So that's number one. And then we do have, and, but, it, but it's time limited. It's not a forever subsidy mm-hmm. that here is a safety net to help you, you know, change your sources of seed, your type of inputs, maybe some equipment, more labor, um, finding new markets, uh, building up your soil health. It all is, you know, the, the biggest factor going through transition is what's between the farmer's ears. It's really in the mind of the farmer, understanding, you know, you really have to uh, follow the natural cycles more closely than you've been afforded to with conventional systems. And it's learning a lot of new, uh, you know, tools, 
techniques, tricks, markets, all that. It takes time. So let's have uh, some support there to make that, but that it's not continual forever. Uh, but at the end, once you are certified organic, we currently have an organic certification cost share. All it does is pay a portion, 75% of the certification fee. It's not a market support. It doesn't help you go through transition. It's at the end of the road. Once you're certified, you get a rebate up to $750 per farm per year. Let's maintain that because that's just helping provide some regulatory relief. And let's make sure that's fully funded and widely available in every county and in every territory, not just in every state. Uh, so let's uh, keep that program in place. It's something we started in Minnesota here in 1998, went nationwide, 2002 Farm Bill, and has continued since. So let's keep that in place. Let's uh, make sure that the crop insurance and other uh, you know, conservation programs that are offered uh, are equitable and have a place, you know, pay out at organic prices when there's crop losses, those kind of things where the government has a role in supporting agriculture. Um, so that's, um, you know, some of the farm bill ideas that I, I think would make a huge difference. And all of Europe has had a transition support system since uh, 1992, and it's been very successful. There are much higher percentages and even numbers. Uh, it's been a number of years ago now, but at that time there were 48,000 organic farms just in Italy at a time when there were about 16,000 in the entire United States. Wow. I mean, that just puts it in perspective. Um, but some of the things I'm also concerned about have more to do with USDA and how the organic program is currently operating. Uh, right now, they are allowing the certification of massive uh, uh, dairies that are confinement operations, you know, 10 to 15,000 head of dairy cows in one uh, facility or at one location. And they are not meeting the pasture requirements. Um, there needs to be... Uh, fair, equitable enforcement of the standards. And um, so there's the imported grain issue I already talked about. There are these large confinement operations. There also is uh, a regulation that was issued as a final rule at the end of the last administration, but then put on hold by the current administration. And that would make it really clear uh, that all species of livestock must actually go outdoors when the weather is suitable. And right now there are huge confinement poultry operations that are being certified organic with like 100,000 birds or more uh, in one building. And these, you know, uh, do not meet consumer expectations, and they certainly provide unfair competition to the bona fide organic farmers who are the majority by far mm -hmm. of organic producers are following the rules and their birds are going outdoors their cattle are on pasture during the grazing season um, but they're having to compete with these um, you know very questionable operations so 
much more rigorous enforcement and allowing that animal welfare rule to go final. Um, so that's a couple things. But there's also a big debate right now where uh, fruits and vegetables are, you know, terrestrial plants are being grown hydroponically, not outdoors, not in soil. They're in, in greenhouses, controlled environments, and all of their nutrients are being provided in uh, liquid solution. And they're in some kind of uh, uh, growing medium to support the roots. Um, most organic certification bodies don't allow this, but a handful do. And so there are products with the USDA organic logo that are not grown in soil, that are grown hydroponically, currently on the market. And um, once again, that's unfair competition to the bona fide organic growers mm -hmm. who are growing in earth. It's an earth-based system. This is all about ecology, mm -hmm. organic is. And that, those hydroponic operations are like the epitome of an industrial model. Um, uh, uh, so that, that needs to be uh, resolved and uh, enforced. And it's an issue coming before the National Organic Standards Board at their next meeting in Jacksonville at the uh, beginning of November. I'm going there. There's going to be a rally in support of soil-based organic production, as well as uh, people testifying to the NOSB. So those are a few things. But I think, um, you know, there, there's been some really good positive developments. We have a lot of universities now with... Um, well-run uh, organic research and outreach programs. Um, so I think that's really important that we uh, invest in the science because organic ultimately is science-based. It's understanding nature, and nothing's more complex than trying to understand and then work within natural systems mm -hmm. to produce good, healthy food. Um, so we need to keep investing more and more uh, in organic research, both at the federal and state levels, and getting those research findings out to the farmers, to the people who can really benefit from them. What can consumers do to help influence these policies? Yeah, well... Um, That's what most of the audience listening, they're consumers, and I'm sure yeah. they would like an opportunity to be able to make their voices known. Yeah, well... Um, uh, certainly purchasing organic food, whether it be at the farmer's market or joining a CSA and knowing how the farmer farms, you know, knowing where your food comes from, asking questions whether somebody's certified or not. You know, there's lots of good organic producers who sell directly and are not certified. So uh, just being more knowledgeable about your food, how it's grown, where it comes from, um, you know, rewarding uh, local producers. Uh, those, uh, you know, if you're not part of a food co-op, joining a food co-op, shopping at stores where you can ask questions and ask questions. Are these, you know, cherry tomatoes uh, uh, hydroponic? Um, get people, get the marketplace to put pressure. If the USDA isn't going to take action, let's expose the companies that are selling these products so that consumers can be informed and choose um, soil-based organic uh, products. So I think 
both being informed and engaged and making you know good investments in your family's health by purchasing organic foods uh, but then you know like I mentioned this National Organic Standards Board meeting there are opportunities to submit public comments right now um, uh, on the various drafts that are out there and it really makes a difference and uh, you know having served on the NOSB we listen we read all those comments um, and anyone has a voice so I think exercising your voice to NOSB but also to both your members of state legislators state legislatures and um, Congress that organic food and farming is important you want to see more investment at the state and federal level um, but then you know if someone is uh, you know really engaged there are opportunities to either volunteer with a nonprofit or get involved in a food co-op board or, or committee or a food charter um, oftentimes universities are looking for people who will uh, you know serve on advisory committees and can help shape uh, the research agendas. So, you know, whatever you know you're comfortable with, there are opportunities to um, uh, engage. Uh, and I, I think, you know, even writing letters to the editor or blogging or you know sharing uh, uh, useful information um, through social media, all of those uh, make a difference. To just re keep reinforcing the importance of authentic, organic uh, uh, agriculture um, for all of the both environmental and human health benefits that it brings. Well, thank you so much, Jim. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to share? Well, I do encourage also uh, people to check out the Organic Farmers Association. And we do have uh, supporting memberships available to individuals. People can donate. And uh, we're really, I think, uh, I'm very excited about uh, this effort and working with great people. And I think it's a voice that needs to be heard. But we do need the consumer support uh, uh, to help make our voice strong and clear. Well, thanks again so much, Jim, for being on the show. Where can people go to learn more about the organization? Yeah, organicfarmersassociation.org. And we'll link to that in the notes. Well, thanks again, Real Jim, good. for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Terrence. It's been a pleasure. After that, I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm looking for honeyberries at the next June farmer's market. Look for the National Organic Farmers Association in the show notes below. Click that link and let's show our organic farmers our support as they continue to feed America. If you enjoy the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast, please leave us a review letting us know that you like it. Subscribe on whatever listening medium you use. And remember, the highest praise we can get is by sharing this with your friends. Thanks for listening. I'm Terrence Lehew. This has been the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast reminding you to keep farming the dream.